All right, Revelation is what we're in right now. Revelation 2. If you've been uh, coming the last couple of weeks or months, you've, you've understood that we're, we're approaching this book the way we approach the rest of the Bible. We're seeking to understand uh, what this particular book of the Bible meant to its original hearers. And we find out that this is a letter It's a letter that's written to seven churches to pastor them through an ordeal. And we've seen that John uses all this imagery to describe this ordeal. He has two beasts, not one, but two beasts and a dragon, kind of this trinity of evil. The one beast uh, we have seen is the beast with seven heads uh, represents uh, the Roman emperors. The second beast is Caesar's propaganda machine that he has put in place um, throughout the empire in the form of temples, altars, priests, to worship Caesar. And then behind all of this is a dragon, and the dragon is none other than Satan himself. In fact, John even includes a woman who he calls the harlot, who rides the beast. Uh, This woman is called Babylon, and, and, and this is a clear reference to Rome. And another thing John says that, that gives us the flavor of what this book is about is he says, the beast is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And here's what I want us to know. This conflict that is taking place between the beast and the lamb, between Caesar and Christ, it's not because... Christians worship Jesus. Rome is very tolerant of other religions. It's not because of who they worship. It's because of who they don't worship. Christians refuse to bow the knee to Caesar. That's the issue. In fact, not only did they not worship Caesar, but they boldly declared to their world... Jesus Christ is the true Savior, he is the true Lord, he is the true God, and Caesar isn't. I don't know about you, but that's inspiring. To see what our brothers and sisters did 2,000 years ago, when when, when the church was born. And and there's one emperor in particular who's just not going to put up with this, Domitian. Um, There's going to be hell to pay, especially in the Roman province of Asia, Because this is where emperor worship uh, begins. This is where it flourishes. In fact, the cities in this province um, are all competing with each other to get Rome's favor. And they do this primarily through through emperor worship. Uh, And to think that it's also in this same province where the church is, is, is taking root and flourishing. Wow. Inspiring. So this is the context of Revelation. That's the context of the letter that we're going to look at today. A letter that Jesus writes to a church in this province. The letter of Pergamum. We like to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you can, please stand. Revelation 2. 
To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Witness there in Greek is martyr. This is where martyr and witness uh, become one. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they food sacrificed to idols and committed pornea, sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, not only to the one who receives it. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Pergamum is uh, one of these cities, and in this city is, 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 a, is a church, probably a house church. Who knows how big it is, but uh, probably not this big, but maybe it is. Um, but let me just show you a PowerPoint picture first of, of this province, um, I don't want you to just see the seven churches, but I want you to see the province of Asia. Because before that was the province of Asia, it was the the Pergamum Empire. Now the Pergamum Empire is, is something that historians call a land bridge. A land bridge is is a nation that connects civilizations and cultures. Now, this is a very important land bridge in the ancient world because it connects east and west. This is where east and west meet. The Pergamum Empire itself, it was very Greek. It was strongly influenced by the Hellenism of its day. So when this other great empire from the west begins to evolve, promising the world gospel, peace, Hope, prosperity. You can't imagine what, what people thought of Rome when Rome started to, to flourish and become this great empire. The hope that people had in it. The, the king of Pergamum literally took the keys of his kingdom and handed them off to Rome and said, we're in. Now look at verses 12 and 13 of our text. To the angel or to the pastor of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. I know where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So let's start with this. Satan's throne. Jesus said, I know where you live where Satan's throne is, what is that a reference to? Well, let me just tell you a few more things about Pergamum. Pergamum is the Washington, D.C. of this region. 
until Ephesus replaces it. It's, it's a proud city that once ruled the Pergamum Empire. It's prosperous. It's powerful. It's prestigious. It has arguably the world's largest library, um, competing only with Alexandria's library. Um, but libraries in that world were, were the equivalent of universities. And so this is a world center uh, for learning. Um, the world-renowned uh, physician Galen uh, lived there. In fact, some scholars think that before it was Pergamum, this is the ancient city of Troy. Um, let me show you just a, a PowerPoint of what archaeologists would say this city looked like. You can see how big it is. You can see uh, two theaters. You can see behind the two theaters a hippodrome. It had all the, all the goodies that the, the Roman Empire provided. Now the thing that I want to highlight, not yet, that's the Acropolis. And you can see the Acropolis in the background. The Acropolis is where all the most important institutions and buildings were. The temples, uh, that's where the, the richest of the rich lived. Uh, but before I get to that, I want to point out this. It's a campus right here at the bottom of the picture. It's called an Asclepion. Asclepions were the hospitals or the healing centers of the ancient world. Healing in the ancient world is always tied to a god. So for the Greeks and the Romans, it's the god Asclepius. The god Asclepius is the god who provides healing which is why that campus is called an Asclepion. The symbol for this god Asclepius, does anybody know what it is? It's a snake wrapped around a pole. Some things don't change, do they? This god was said to heal with moving water. Does that ring a bell of of any stories in the New Testament? John 5. When Jesus comes to the pool uh, of Bethesda, he he sees a lame man and he asks him, do you want to get well? And what does that man say? He says, whenever the water moves, archaeologists have just found right next to that pool a temple to the god Asclepius. So this person is believing um, even in Jerusalem, in the healing powers of of this God. And I love this because Jesus is already training his disciples. No, I am the healer, and he's preparing them to go into this world right here. Well, they, they will declare Jesus is the healer of the world. Now, Pergamum had the largest Asclepion in the world. It's, it's the Mayo Clinic of the ancient world. This is a sophisticated operation where people all over the world would come to be healed. Their treatments consisted of diet, herbs, oils, exercise, dream therapy, spa treatment, stress relief, entertainment, special washings and baths. There was a huge library on the campus where you could research any and every disease known at that time. They used narcotics, opium, all of this. And here's what I want us to know. This was not a hoax. People were healed. And all the healing was credited to the god Asclepius. 
In fact, on the campus, in the plaza, was a huge white stone with signed testimonials to the healing of this God that people experienced. Rod Van Salkema, healed of his right ear, 2016. And I want us to see how Satan works. How he craftily creates counterfeits. And I think this is uh, what Paul has in mind in Romans 1. When he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. It's a great candidate for why Jesus says Satan's throne. Um, Go to the Acropolis now. Love that we have these reconstructions of what the city would look like. Um, If you see that theater, next to that theater is a temple to Dionysius. Dionysius is the Greco-Roman god of theater and party. In fact, the worship expression of, uh, uh, of this god, I think, would make the promiscuity in our world look tame. Dionysius was oftentimes called Dionysius Soter, the Savior Dionysius. Dionysius promised eternal life. Again, Satan is so good at at providing counterfeits. The way you were in the spirit of, of Dionysius is you would gorge on alcohol until you just became so drunk. The way you became one in, in flesh with, with Dionysius is you had sex with a stranger. And this is the college frat god right here. In fact, there were times when even Rome outlawed the worship of this god because it was so wild and so out of control. This god's alive and well today. How many people today think that they can still find life through drunkenness and lust and hooking up? What a lie only to find out the destruction that it brings. Now going still higher, you can, you can see that building off to the right on this, on this platform. Uh, that is the oldest temple in Pergamum, and it is devoted to the Greco-Roman god Zeus. Zeus is the kingpin in the Roman pantheon of gods. He's called creator of the universe. He's called Lord and King over all things. People from all over the world would come to Pergamum to go to that place, which actually looks like a throne, to offer sacrifices to Zeus. That too could be why Jesus says where Satan's throne is. But you have to understand, in that world... You put your most important thing at the highest point. And the temple that is at the highest point in the city of Pergamum is a temple to the emperor. 
In fact, Pergamum is the first city to begin worship of emperor going all the way back to Julius Caesar in 69 AD, BC. Then became uh, called Neochorus by Rome. Neochorus means world center. It became the world center to the worship of Caesar until Domitian replaced it with Ephesus. In my opinion, when Jesus says, you live in that city where Satan's throne is, he is most referring to the emperor worship. I want us to get into the shoes of what it would have been like to be a Christian in Pergamum in the first century. Where every single day, when you look up to that Acropolis, you are reminded that I live in a place, not that just voted for Caesar, but who worships Caesar as Lord and God. Now I want us to hear Jesus' encouragement to this church. I love what he says in verse 13. He says, you remained true to my name and you did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now Antipas is a victim probably of local persecution. I don't think that this is the emperor from Rome doing this. I think this is done by the local government. The reason I think that is because Rome gave to Pergamum a special right that very few cities had. It was the right of the sword. It was the right to execute people without Rome's permission. And it's not hard to understand why, why Pergamums would hate Christians. Because this is a city that prided itself on its allegiance to Caesar. All you have to do is think where that temple is. And then you have all these Christians. You have in their minds this cancer that, that's spreading whose allegiance isn't to Caesar, but they're against Caesar. Their allegiance is to Christ. I love how Jesus speaks about himself. He describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Because here's the deal. If you read Revelation carefully, starting in chapter 1, where John encounters Jesus face to face, and he says, I fell down before him like a dead man. And then he gives all these detailed uh, descriptions of the Jesus he just encountered. And then if you notice in these letters, Jesus takes at least one of John's descriptions to Ephesus. Jesus says, to the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. To Smyrna, he says, the first and the last who died and came to life again. And now to Pergamum, he says, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. You have to ask yourself, why did Jesus take this description of himself and, 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 and tell the, the Pergamum Christians, this is who I am? Probably because Pergamum may have the sword of Rome, but in effect, Jesus is saying, but my sword is bigger. In fact, didn't Jesus say, do not fear the one who can kill your body, and, and kill your body, but not your soul. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul 
into hell. Now comes Jesus' critique, verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual adultery. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In essence, they are one and the same. Some of you, says Jesus, hold to the teachings of Balaam. Now, Balaam is, is, is the Jewish way of describing false teaching. And the false teaching that's going on in the Pergamum church is this permissive attitude towards two things. Towards eating food that's offered to idols and towards porneia or sexual immorality. And Jesus labels this permissive teaching as Balaam. In fact, the next church we're going to look at is is Thyatira. These same two issues are are going to be addressed with them. Uh, The issue of, of being permissive towards eating food offered to idols and pernea, sexual immorality. And Jesus there is going to call that Jezebel. This week, we're going to deal with the pornea part. And what we need to know, whether you know this or not, is that when you label something as Balaam, that that is a harsh condemnation. But see, we need to know the text to actually know that. So if you don't know Numbers 22 through 25, you don't really know what Jesus is probably saying here when he calls that Balaam. Balaam was a pagan prophet in the ancient world. He was hired by the king of Moab to pronounce a curse on this growing nation Israel who God redeemed from Egypt and gave a specific mission to them to bear God's image, to be a nation of priests who will stand in the gap on behalf of the world. So Balak hires Balaam to curse them. Balaam goes up this high mountain overlooking Israel, and, and, and as he attempts to curse them, Every time he opens his mouth, instead of curses coming out, the only thing that come out are blessings. It's almost kind of funny. In fact, one of the great Christmas prophecies is uttered by Balaam when he says, I see him, not now. I behold him, but he's still a far way off. A star will come out of Jacob. A king will come out of Judah, and the nations will bow to him. That's Christmas, coming from this pagan prophet. Well, plan A didn't work, so then they resort to plan B. If we can't curse them, then let's entice them to worship our gods. And in that way, we'll make them like us. Or better yet, we'll wipe them out. So what they do is they send their women into Israel's camp to invite, invite the Israelite men over for these visits. And it's not hard to understand what, what these visits 
uh, were about. And eventually, it's not going to just be the men going to their camp for visits, but the ladies from their camp are going to come over to the, from their nation, are going to come over to the Israelite camp uh, for visits. And this thing gets so out of control. They are getting them to worship their gods through sexual immorality. Because if you remember, pagan worship was essentially sexual. The way you worshiped the gods, and in this case, it's Baal Peor. You need to get Baal and Asherah to mate. Because when they mate, the rain is going to come. And the rain is is the fertility of, of Baal to water the earth. And this is a part of the world that can't survive without rain. So the way you get them to mate so that there's rain is you mimic what you want them to do. So the people would mate like crazy with shrine prostitutes. They would hold these huge festivals that became orgy in nature. They'd gorge on food. They'd binge on drink. And then it'd turn into orgy. That Baal of Peor simply means Lord of the opening. It's perverted. Because the ancient world understood that sex is more than sex. That there is a spiritual force and a power behind it. See, we treat sex today almost like a pastime. Like playing tennis or a round of golf or going to a baseball game. But really, sex belongs in the category of crack cocaine or heroin. Because there's this massive power behind it. A power that can come and seduce us and get us tangled in its web and destroy us. And so really, Balaam and Balak are right. I mean, maybe they can't take Israel out militarily, But boy, we can wipe these guys out morally and spiritually. Let's take them out by enticing them. And what I want us to see is this isn't just Balak's strategy or Balaam's strategy. This is Satan's strategy. That we would be swept away by this tsunami of sexual immorality. Nothing's really changed much from the ancient world, has it? I don't have to tell you about all the sex on campuses these days. I don't have to tell you about all the sex in the marketplace. I don't have to tell you about all the sex that's on TV, the sex that's in the internet, sex in politics, sex in sports. Sex is, is saturating almost everything in our culture today, and it's wiping us out. It's destroying marriage. It's destroying family. It's destroying millions of people's self-worth, their identity. You know what's crazy to me? Is, on one sense, all the sex going on on campus, it's the hooking up. You have that reality. And then you have Harvard declaring to the world that one out of three women are sexually assaulted 
during their four years of college. But we don't connect the dots. God has something very specific in mind when he created sex. That's right, God created sex. God made us for sex. Sex is part of God's master plan for the world. Because he placed sex in a very specific context. The context of covenant. A covenant between a man and a woman. He placed sex within the bounds of marriage. For the purpose. Yes, of pleasure. But more importantly, for family. And today what we have is we have sex without marriage. We have kids without marriage. We've cheapened marriage to mean whatever we want it to mean. And we've treated sex with such irreverence. And you know who the biggest victims of all this are? Our children. I mean, are we even stopping to think about the future? Are we thinking about the, the very basics of, of, of how children are supposed to come into this world uh, and, and how they're to be trained and, and nurtured and sent out. And I'll tell you something that went hand in hand with the ancient sex practices. Infanticide. Unwanted babies. It produced all these unwanted babies. These babies were either offered to the bales in the Asherahs or they were left at the garbage dump. It's not much different today. I'm embarrassed. I'm just going to say this. I'm embarrassed at how little in my 12 years of being at Crossroads that I have talked about abortion. And I'll tell you when this embarrassment started. Two weeks ago, when I'm driving home from Thanksgiving and my 15-year-old daughter is asking me about abortion, and I describe it to her, and if you could have heard the wails and the devastation that came out of her. In fact, last week she came home and she looked at me and she said, if I hear my teacher endorse abortion again, I'm going to stand up and walk out of the class. Do I dare ask, are we any different in our world? The church? Is our view of sex any different than our world's view? How prevalent is premarital sex today in the church? What about adultery? What about pornography? This week, one of our marriage leaders asked me a very honest question. Rod, what is 
your and our stance on people who want to get married but are living together. I said, are you kidding me? You don't know the answer to that? She goes, no, I don't. Well, now I'm going to tell you my answer to that so you all know. If you're living together and you want to get married by crossroads, don't even waste the time of making the phone call unless you're willing to go God's way. I'm not done yet. I had another person call me up, a mom, and and said her daughter is struggling with same-sex attraction and she wants counsel. Where do you stand? Listen, feelings and desires are something that we all have. And I'm not going to shame anyone's feelings. Because you can have a lot of fun shaming my feelings and my desires. But in saying that, to live a homosexual lifestyle is unbiblical. And I'm not up here on my high horse right now because I really should be down here with you because I have my struggles, you have your struggles in this area of sexuality and we need each other. But the last thing we need is some Balaam up here who's telling Rod, it's okay, God understands, you can just live out who you are. I need a prophet. I need a John the Baptist. I need an Isaiah who's going to say, Thus saith the Lord. Because when we are no different than the world, Satan wins and he makes his throne in God's place. God says, your mission is to be holy as I am holy. Because your mission is to bear my image and to put me on display and to show the world who I am and what I'm like. That's what's at stake. Hosea 9 Shoot, I forgot to mark this. <laughs> Hosea, I found it. Good. This is God talking. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol. And they became as vile as the thing they loved and worshipped. I want us to hear what Hosea is, is saying because he's describing the same event. And he's saying that when Israel worshipped Baal of Peor, it became like the very God it was worshipping. Because, here's the principle, we will become what we worship. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. I'm going to put this on the screen so you can read it. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life 
is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward, outward to the world around you. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These are the many forms of idolatry. Combine them in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of God's people and the lives they touch. So what's at stake? Now, if you know the Balaam story, this thing gets so out of control that an Israelite man takes a Midianite woman into the tent. God's tent. In fact, he walks right past Moses with his prostitute and goes into God's tent. And Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, can't take it anymore. So he goes into the tent, takes out his sword where the two of them are copulating, and boom. God in that moment says about Phineas, here is a man after my own heart. Because here is a man who has my, in Hebrew, kana. Kana means jealousy. It means passion. It means zeal. In fact, this is what God says about himself when he gives the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me because I am a jealous God. I'm a God of kana. And so God loves what Phineas did, not because God loves fanaticism. This is not a fanatical action. It's priestly. Because what Phineas is passionate about is guarding and preserving God's sanctuary, the place where God's honor and his presence dwells. Zeal for my house will consume a guy like Phineas. Which is why God then makes an eternal covenant with Phineas. He says, you and your sons will be my priests forever. Because God is saying, this is the kind of person who I want, who's going to guard my sanctuary. Now, when you just fast forward in the story and and, and go to Pentecost. uh, On Pentecost, the church became the sanctuary of God. We're God's sanctuary, which is why Jesus says to this church, there can be no Balaam in my house. No compromise. No trying to accommodate the world's way with my way, which is why Jesus in in verse 16 says, repent. Repent or I will come. With my sword. 
I will come as Phineas. Repent. And the reason why Jesus will come to the church with, with his sword is not because he's some jealous, overprotective boyfriend. Don't think of Jesus that way. This is a marriage. And as a husband, God is jealous for his wife, Kana. He has this intense love and passion and devotion to his wife. Now, do you know the story right before Balaam? Well, it's where there's this epidemic of people dying from snake bites. And God says to Moses, because Moses comes to him, what do I do? God says to them, uh, make the symbol of healing. Make the symbol of healing. Put a snake on a pole. And then tell the people all they have to do is, is, is come to this snake on a pole and, and, and look at it with faith and they're going to be healed. It's a strange story, but it's a story that when Jesus comes to the world, he actually points to this story and he says that snake points to me. And you think to yourself, what do you mean? A snake is the most cursed animal there is. And Jesus is saying, yes, I will become that snake. Because when I am lifted up like that snake on a pole, all of the curse will be placed on me. And all people have to do is come and look. And they'll be healed. And you know the next verse? Yes, you do. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. He took the curse so we could be healed. Why? Ask the why question. It's because God is a lover. He is ravished with us. Whether it's as a passionate husband with a sword in his hand or, a, or as a cursed snake who's dying in our place, he is jealous for you. No one is jealous for you like Jesus. And if you remember that white stone of Asclepius where you'd write your name and the healing that you received on that stone, John says, or Jesus says, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the true healer. And so complete is my healing that I literally have to give you a new name. I have to rename you because you are all new you, new life, new name, new identity, new hope, new purpose. And see, this is why you and I can look at the pornea in our life, the Balaam that might exist, the idolatry, and why we can repent The New Testament makes it very clear. We are God's house. We are his sanctuary. In fact, Paul takes it even further. He says your body is a sanctuary. And my question this morning is where are the Phineases? Men and women who will rise up to guard and protect God's sanctuary. 
It's why Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death all pernea, all sexual immorality. What we need to do is be like Phineas and we need to take out the sword and look at that stuff in our life and put it to death. Paul will say to the church in Ephesus, not even a hint of pornea ought to be among you. Are we willing to take out the sword and kill all the illicit loves in our heart and life? What are they? Are we going to have the passion of a Phineas to slay them? Or are we just going to passively go to church and live unrepentant lives? And here's the deal. How do do we put things to death? Uh, Yes, we pluck things out. We uproot things. We throw things away. We we, we bury them. But it's, it's not even so much about willpower. It's not so much what we do. Because at the end of the day, we can't do it. We can't perform it. The way that our heart is really going to be changed the way that we are, 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 are going to have our hearts where they're going to actually want to repent, you need to know that God is jealous for you. You need to see the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, a snake lifted up on a pole. You need to look. You need to look at that and believe it and trust it and be healed by it. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, may there be repentance in my heart today, Lord. Lord, you know the illicit loves in my own life that I need to repent of. God, may there be repentance in this church today. And God, when we feel like your standards, which are so much higher than the ways of our world, when they crush us to the ground, and may they do that, but may we turn and look at you and see how you're so jealous for how you love us with everything you have. And may that cause our hearts to repent today, God.